Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, April 17th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and on Twitter at inquiringshow, and Facebook at slash podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. At Inquiring Minds, we are big fans of movies that get the science right. It's one of the best ways of communicating science. And of course, we are in the business of making sure that our listeners understand the science and can make good decisions about their own lives as a result of that. And if, if a movie gets you there, then I'm all for it. So a few weeks ago, our producer and our guest host for this week, uh, Rebecca Watson, uh, went to see a movie called Ex Machina. And they both loved it. They both came back and said, look, the science in this movie is actually really strong. And it tackles a topic that is really interesting, which is artificial intelligence. So let's get the writer and director onto the show. Now, you might have noticed that the last couple of episodes, uh, after we expressed interest, Ex Machina actually became one of our sponsors, which we were delighted by. Um, But I just want to note that this happened after we agreed to interview them. So without further ado, I want to introduce our guest host. You might have heard her on our show before or on her previous podcast, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, um, Rebecca Watson. She is a science communicator and a blogger, a podcaster, and amongst all the other jobs that she does, she also runs the Skeptic Network. So Rebecca Watson, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's so good to be here and nice to be on with Kishore. Hello, Kishore. Hi, Rebecca. What was the lure of a movie about artificial intelligence? We've been inundated with movies from Steven Spielberg's AI to... Uh, not so good movies like iRobot. What was it about this film that really stood out to you about the science being closer to being right? It's true. There have been zillions, I think, of of AI-centered films these days. But this one in particular, I loved because 
of its plausibility for one, even though we aren't anywhere currently near to having the science available to make an AI, the likes of which is in the film. But the way that it comes about is uh, thanks to someone who runs uh, basically a company like Google, uh, which gathers data on everyone. And uh, amazingly, this was this film was written before uh, the Snowden stuff came out about the NSA spying on people through their cell phones. But that's basically how they collect all of the information needed to make this AI uh, compelling and, and, and get it to the point where you can reasonably ask whether or not it's self-aware. So there's that, there's, there, there's the plausibility of it. And also, I just really love this film, thanks to the multiple levels that it works on, which really comes through, I think, in the interview, because we get into all sorts of things when when I talk to the writer-director, Alex Garland. Uh, it, it's about, it's not just about the technology, uh, and it's not even just about where our future is going in terms of AI. It's It's also... Uh, about what makes us human and what makes us self-aware and how can you even tell if you're self-aware. And there there are just a lot of different levels uh, to the film. And I have to throw it out there, a very, very strong uh, female actors in this film uh, that really were pleasing. <laughs> like I can't, I don't want to say too much and, and give it away, but uh, the gender dynamic in the film is really, uh, I, I think, really thought provoking and just awesome. And on that note, we should uh, let our listeners know that they will be talking about the film. So although they will do their best to avoid any spoilers that might actually decrease your enjoyment of the film, um, if you haven't seen it, and you really are dying to see it, then you might want to watch the film first, and listen to the interview afterwards. Um, but I also like to point out that there is a psychological science paper published in 2012 called Spoilers Don't Spoil Stories, <laughs> um, showing that your pleasure rating of how much you enjoy a book, even if it's an ironic twist, mystery, etc., does not diminish if you know the ending. <laughs> Yeah, spoilers so. don't ruin stories. People do. <laughs> yes, people do, right. So just laying that out there. We we did steer clear of, of any major spoilers. So I, I think people can be fairly, uh, feel fairly good about listening to the interview and not being spoiled. Awesome. Well, that's our interview for today. But first, I wanted to talk to both of you about a couple things that have come across. Oh, God, Kishore's already. Um, what do you call that? I'm trying to do it. I'm not popping succeeding. his knuckles. I don't know if you can hear that disgusting noise. So my question was going to be, first off, do you guys do you find that noise as irritating as I do? I mean, to me, it's like, you know, I, I get like there's like a major insect crawling up my back when I hear somebody popping I their knuckles. I find it. it totally disgusting. It's awful. I you guys totally have always agree. hated it. Is <laughs> it is the sound of just relief and joy to me. <laughs> I just think of that sensation when I pop my knuckles about how good it feels. That fleeting moment. I like that sound. <laughs> I, I think there have been studies that that have shown that it's not true that that actually hurts your your joints in any way. I know for a while there was this thought that it could lead to arthritis or something. But despite knowing that, I still – that's what I think when I hear somebody doing that. I'm like, you're just destroying your body in some horrible way. I can't – 
I can't handle it. Well, hopefully the the findings from this new study will start to alleviate some of at least the the rational reasons why we don't like it. I don't know about the sort of gut feeling that comes when you hear that noise. Um, But Rebecca, you're exactly right. There's no evidence that cracking your knuckles actually leads to arthritis or any sort of related conditions of the joints. Um, And the question is, is what is it that causes the sound? Um, Now, the second issue that Kishore brought up is whether or not it actually gives you pleasure. I don't know if if, or there is some kind of relief that happens there. And, you know, the results of the study might actually bring that into question. But um, in uh, this week in PLOS, uh, there was a report that scientists took one individual and put him into an MRI machine and actually built this device um, that could crack one of his knuckles, isn't his index finger. And they did that over and over and over again. And they looked at what, you know, seemed to correlate with the, co- the, with the noise of the pop knuckle. I'm looking at a picture of this device right now. This is the craziest rig I have ever seen. <laughs> this guy is his, just his hand is strapped into an fMRI machine, which is just a tunnel. And they've hooked up like a giant Chinese finger trap to his finger. Apparently to like constantly like pop his his knuckle Uh, in that one index finger? This seems cruel. Well, let me just correct you there for a moment. It's not an fMRI machine. It's an MRI machine because there's no brain function in your index finger. (laughs) I think so. Before Um, we get the angry emails. Take the function out of the MRI. (laughs) But it's kind of a creep. You can actually watch a video. We'll we'll post it on our Tumblr page. You can watch a video uh, of the the study of, of the MRI of it. And essentially what seems to happen is that within... The joint, there is a bubble that forms, you know, of of the joint fluid. And it's actually the formation of the bubble that seems to make the sound rather than its collapse, which is what other people used to that. Those are the two competing hypotheses. Was it, is it the formation of the bubble or the collapse of the bubble that makes that popping noise? And it turns out that at least from this study, it's correlational, of course. Um, it looks as though it's actually the formation of the bubble, but not any kind of collapse that correlates with the noise. This is one of those ridiculous studies where they talk about how there's been a war between two factions about whether it's the formation or the um, the breaking of the bubble that's actually making the noise. And that has been going on since the 50s, this <laughs> argument. and uh, But uh, to counteract a little bit of this story, uh, there's only one person in this study. <laughs> so all of the findings are based off of one dude's one appendage. In this, in an MRI, being his knuckle being cracked over and over again. Yep. So you're saying that this probably won't end this horrific war that has been raging for 60 years. We're going to have to go another 50 years before we probably finally find the answer to this. How well, many more deaths must we... <laughs> I'm waiting for Obama to start the knuckle, $100 million knuckle initiative to really map <laughs> the entirety of the knuckle. Well, I guess we'll just have to go to the next knuckle cracking conference to find out uh, whether or not people are actually buying into this uh, as the final solution to the question or whether there's still more work to be done. So, But it still doesn't doesn't answer the question of, of why you would feel relief. If, if it's really just the formation of a, of a bubble and joint fluid, I mean, that seems to me like, you know, shouldn't really be something pleasurable. I don't think we should pull at the thread of the little things uh, involving my body that I think are are pleasurable from cracking my knuckles on. on. Well, let's move on. (laughs) then. 
The science and the news item that caught my eye has been going on for a couple weeks. There's been a a huge piece published in Gawker about the food babe. Food babe is this uh, woman, Vanny Hari, no relation, who uh, writes uh, articles about the dangers of chemicals in certain foods and advocates for an organic, healthy lifestyle. And if you recall back last year, there was a movement to get rid of the yoga mat chemical from Subway bread, which made my experience at Subway, which is not altogether positive generally, even even more disgusting. And uh, she successfully lobbied Subway to remove it and has sort of embarked on this career. And scientists do not like this woman, mostly because she presents a lot of science that is factually inaccurate on her site. And her, uh, what she calls the food babe army, parrots this information. So a, a science communicator going by the, the pseudonym Science Babe uh, wrote a, a piece in Gawker that was you know, termed a takedown piece that really rebutted all of these things on her site. And it got picked up by a lot of major publications, including Elle magazine. So it got out to a lot of popular um, uh, sites. And I saw science communicators from here across the earth, like high-fiving each other, saying like, we got her. We took down this person. But I felt very conflicted about this. And I'm so glad that we have Rebecca on, who's a, a noted skeptic, to talk about uh, what has happened and if we're actually doing any good here. So, I mean, the first question I have uh, for both of you is whether you felt this sort of takedown piece was, is a positive thing or if this will just rally people to her side. Uh, against uh, against science in some way. Well, I'm still stuck on the fact that two women need to add babe to their names in order to achieve, you know, celebrity status or respect or what have you. That that I find more annoying almost than a lot of other stuff. So I- I'm going to just leave my comment there for a minute and bring Rebecca to, to put some substance into that answer. I find that really cringy too, but I'm not allowed to say anything about it because I have a website called Skeptic. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, d- I don't know... Was anyone really high-fiving and saying we got her? (laughs) I mean, we've been – we, the part of science communicators, have been battling food babe for quite a long time now, many months at least. And, uh, you know, she went through – there's the yoga mat in Subway and there was also the – uh, the what to do on airplanes because airplanes will kill you. The air, not falling. Yeah, she from was the referencing air. the air quality in airplanes and that there was like bacterial right. and viral load that is so toxic. She uses that word a lot, toxic. Yeah, and uh, she also talked about how it's not even pure oxygen that they're pumping into planes. There's they use nitrogen, nitrogen in there. Oh like, <laughs> she's uh, so so. I mean. This has been going on for a long time. So that that's one thing is that this isn't new. It's it but overall yeah, I think it's good that uh valid criticisms are reaching a larger audience. Uh will it just rally her people more? Well, this woman had a New York Times bestseller. I mean, we're not giving her a platform that she didn't already have. Uh, So there's, you know, which is a concern sometimes if there's just one lone nut somewhere saying something dangerous, there is a concern with somebody giving them a platform just to debunk them because now they've got a platform they didn't have before. But in this woman's case, I mean, she is 
outrageously popular. So absolutely, any criticism that can reach more people. And and I think her criticism was a good one. It wasn't over the top. It wasn't just a bunch of ad hominem attacks, which, you know, I think people can be forgiven when it comes to the food babe for losing their minds and just shouting uh, expletives. You know, she, she did a very detailed takedown of a lot of the things she says, which again, you know, isn't new, but it's great that this was in a place that, that got more eyeballs. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Just to give her credit, her name is Yvette Dantremont. She's uh, at Science Babe on Twitter. And uh, I totally agree in that, that, you know, I think that this is the kind of work that needs to continue to be done that you need to call people out on. I mean, this is, you know, one of the websites that we've mentioned on this show that we're really excited about in 2016 is SideCheck, where they're actually going to be checking the science behind what politicians are claiming is backing up, you know, some of their own uh, ideas about what the science says. And I think it's important to continue to check people's science. So I'm all for that. And I and I'm glad that it got picked up by other outlets, because it does need to be read. And hopefully the outcome is not that, you know, the food babe is all of a sudden gonna get shamed or in some way, you know, but maybe it'll make her think twice about some of the claims that she's making. And maybe she'll throw some scientists onto her board and improve, I hope. I completely disagree. <laughs> I think this is a bad thing. Mostly because I think the Gawker piece really attacked her personally on some level, and the results were really predictable. She immediately did a, a rebuttal post that really attacked the messenger and not the message, which is a, something we've seen a lot in, in various communication circles. And what I think that really does is harden her against being open to science influencing her position. Uh, and really the i i'm not really worried about her outside of the fact she's selling the good hari name they it's really about those followers of her and people that encounter her in pop culture i'm worried about her hardening their viewpoints against science in some way being less receptive to science her almost becoming a martyr of some sort I, and it's too early to tell if that pans out so i think this is actually a bad thing i think there is a, a way to discredit her uh, that maintained a level of credibility within the scientific community that wasn't implemented here, but that doesn't get you like clicks. So, so you maybe think, this you needed to happen. That she that that Yvette should have stayed away from the sort of personal um, components and just stuck to something more factual yeah, or general. The or? title of the piece is "The Food Babe is Full of BS." <laughs> so I mean, it was already kind of provocative in that way. Uh, the the thing I worry about is is that she can become the next uh, Wakefield, that she becomes a rallying cry for a community uh, that runs contrary to science in some way, and that we don't have any input into that community, and that community continues to grow. But how did you know? How did that happen to Wakefield though? Not through Gawker articles. I mean, Wakefield was by and large discredited through uh, mainstream journalism that directly attacked his study and through follow-up studies and for getting, you know, uh, kicked out of uh, having his, his study retracted. Uh, there was nothing really, there, there's, there's no, um, there's no Gawker article about Wakefield that, that 
that pushed him into the limelight. He got there because he had a story that a lot of people wanted to hear, and they grabbed a hold of it and ran with it. And that's where we are today. And it's the same thing with the food babe. She will make herself a martyr no matter what. You know, if if someone publishes a paper disproving her, which would be basically all of modern science, uh, that's not going to make a difference, A, because no one will see it, but B, if people do see it, then again, she's a martyr because the scientific establishment is attacking this poor woman who's just trying to help people. So, you know, I don't think that this Gawker article, like saying that she's full of BS, that's really just, that's not that bad. You know, that's not, in fact, I'll go ahead and say that that's not bad at all. That is a factual statement that I don't think is at all over the top. And if it helps, you know, when people Google the food babe and something like this pops up on the same page as her site, I think that that is 100% a good thing. And, you know, we do have libel laws in this country. So I'm sure Gawker was very, you know, made sure that whatever... uh that claimed was backed up by evidence. Um, but I also just want to remind our listeners that the Wakefield we're talking about is Andrew Wakefield, who published uh, the initial study in which he interpreted a link between autism and vaccines, the MMR vaccine. But um, which is which you know, uh, food been- babe has jumped on now as well, talking about how awful vaccines are. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say that, you know, getting the yoga mat chemical out of Subway seems like a positive thing for society. <laughs> so is there any Anything redeemable it's, it's about actually kind of not the the science doesn't totally agree <laughs> on that one either oh <laughs> yeah there's there's really nothing she nothing hasn't redeemable. done anything good okay. <laughs> well she has no, a nice last i want to point out my favorite ridiculous thing that she said that kishore might appreciate is that uh she she wrote that uh something about what her name means in indian like that is something that she wrote in indian which is not a language. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> you would you would hope that of all the things she might know that, but she does not uh-huh. apparently. And and I I think it's not necessarily that she doesn't know, but that she doesn't care. Like who cares about any kind of accuracy because that money's being raked in every day that she says something that gets hits. Yeah, and so. she's probably too busy for facts. I mean, yeah, you know. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with Rebecca's interview with Alex Garland. This week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Overpaying for a drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind. So make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's high-quality German-engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship for free straight to your door. I use a Harry's blade, and it is one of the most gorgeous and sharpest blades I've ever used. Their starter set is just $15. That includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. But as an added bonus, Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you use our coupon code, InquiringMinds. That's harrys.com, coupon code, InquiringMinds. Alex Garland, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Uh, Thank you very much. 
Alex is the writer and director of the new film Ex Machina, in which a multi-billionaire named Nathan, played by Oscar Isaac, invents a robot named Ava, played by Alicia Vikander, and invites his employee Caleb, played by Donald Gleason, to meet her and determine whether or not she is truly conscious. So that's the briefest of overviews, but there's a lot of different nooks and crannies to get into here, Alex. So let's start by just talking about the artificial intelligence in the film. Particularly, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own research when trying to figure out a scientifically accurate way to present a a man almost single-handedly creating a lifelike robot who may possess consciousness. Well, I mean, um, I guess the thing is that, that in some respects, you can't be scientifically accurate about it because it doesn't exist. But you can be scientifically reasonable, I suppose, would be the intention. And um, uh, so th that began, from my point of view, actually long time before I started thinking of this as a possible story, um, just by reading about, uh, partly reading about AI and reading arguments that would suggest that you might be able to get, say, self-aware or sentient machines and arguments that said that you couldn't. And also reading about just uh, theory of mind to do with us, really, uh, to do with humans and um, and the consciousness that we have or appear to have. And and issues of one tend to, to relate to the other anyway. Um, and uh, so, so, so it began with that. And gradually I got more and more interested in the subject uh, because it's so fundamental in, in terms of what it approaches, which is what the best areas of science always seem to do is deal with the real fundamentals. You know, where are we? Where are we going? How did we get here? Uh, that kind of thing. And at a certain point, it just arrived uh, as, a, as a narrative in my head or, or elements of it became dramatized, I suppose, and it presented itself as a story. And I was working on another film at the time, very different kind of movie, a sort of very violent dystopian cop film, uh, futuristic movie. And, and I quickly just wrote it down and finished that movie then, and then got back into this. And uh, in terms of scientifically reasonable, my approach was to to write it as best I could and then test it on a bunch of people, uh, send the script to people uh, who I knew were uh, more expert than I was in these fields. And um, one of them is a mutual friend of ours, uh, Gia Milinovic, and, um, and also a guy called Murray Shanahan, who'd written a very fascinating book about consciousness and embodiment and a uh, uh, few, few other people. And did they have feedback that led you to change any uh, specific elements of the film? Um, they uh, sort of yes and no. I mean, it's, it, sounds, it sounds arrogant to say no, and I certainly wouldn't want it to be like that i i had i had read as much as i could and understood it as best as i could and sometimes it was actually kind of effectively paraphrasing uh or not effect i was i was paraphrasing arguments or thought experiments that were contained in uh literature about this subject and um and sometimes i was showing it to the people that had written that literature therefore they were they would have been correcting themselves in some respect. Um, but, but, but yes, I, I mean, it was modified. I have to say in the case of Gia and, and her input, um, that was via conversation and, and in some respects had been going on quite a long time, um, and, and taken various sorts of forms. But, but, but yes, uh, partly I'm being elliptical, but it, it's hard to remember the specifics, 
part like this thing changed in this way because of this thing this person said because the the process is is more formless and organic than that it's like it's like testing something out and then they go oh, not really and then you change it a bit and it's it's something like that. Um, sort of like Nathan building uh, the perfect robot. Uh, I guess so, in as much as that that's in, uh, sort of in, implicitly it was a kind of uh, long organic process, yeah. Um, right. Yeah, uh, well, I think what I'd want to do is emphasize the fact that, that the ideas contained within this story are largely not my ideas. They're, what, what I'm doing is collating other people's ideas and attempting to dramatize them. And you alluded to this earlier, but... Um, how much research went into the philosophy side of it? Because as as much as this is rooted in science, being a, a science fiction film, there's an intense amount of philosophy going on. I, again, a, a lot of research, and and actually that was the area um, because because it's science fiction, and you're allowed to make a big leap. Like for example, there's a level of robotics in the film that doesn't exist in reality, or there's a level of um, uh, sort of advance in in AI in the film that doesn't exist. Uh, th- that stuff, there's more tolerance. But when it comes to presenting the ph- philosophy, these ideas have, some of them existed quite a long time and have been very well picked over. And I, I think that's where I got most nervous and, and that's where I needed it to be examined the hardest. Um, some of it philosophy about theory of mind and some of it uh, more political, I suppose. And, um, and, there's another thing as well, which is that because you're not talking about science, which can provide you with clear answers about stuff, many of the questions that are being raised don't have clear answers, or in fact, maybe don't have answers at all. Um, and the the thing to be there is, is, so it's not exactly about being accurate, it's more about being reasonable in the presentation, um, if, if, right. if that's a sort of fair qualification. And a lot of these philosophical areas become rabbit holes. I know that after I saw the film, I went home and read up on the Mary in the black and white room uh, thought experiment, which uh, Nathan brings up in the film. And uh, for those listeners who aren't aware, as I wasn't before I saw the film, it's a thought experiment involving a scientist who basically studies color, but has never actually seen it. So she knows scientifically everything there is to know about color. Eventually, though, she leaves her black and white room and she experiences color for the first time herself. And the question is, at that moment, has she learned something new? And the idea is, you know, to coax people out of uh, a materialist thought process and more into a dualist idea. So, Right, because because it's also presented as a rhetorical question. Of course, she's learned something new. The the, the point is, it, th- that argument is usually presented as as evidence of qualia, you, you know, one's experience of a uh, of of a subjective response to say the color red or whatever it happens to be, and uh, and it seems so obvious that we all have the experience of the color red, and it is dis- mine is distinct from yours, and it's in some way. Uh, can't be fully explained to you or fully relayed to you. Uh, and that becomes used as uh, eventually as a kind of evidence for for some special qualities that human consciousness has that, say, a machine can't have. Like you use the word or, or the phrase rabbit hole. Th- there's a lot of rabbit holes and you, you can go down them and get lost as you're going down them. And and then the other thing that one has to remember, and and it's something that the character Nathan in the film keeps doing, is 
it's sort of like, yes, you can ask a whole bunch of questions about, am I sentient? Am I conscious? Am I self-aware? But you can also cut through all of that stuff and say, yeah, of course you are. Yeah, obviously. Um, uh, in, in a way that's beyond doubt. Um, um, move on, uh, look at something else. So it's incredibly, I, I find as a layman that's, that dealing with this stuff is like trying to hold on to a very wet bar of soap sort of in a rainstorm. It's, it's, it's very tricky. Right. And even that idea of figuring out if you're self-aware or not, and then just accepting the fact that you are, it also reminds me of at some point during the film, I realized that Ava, the AI, goes from very quickly and early on goes from being an object to a subject. Yes. And it occurs to me that, of course, she's self-aware. We're watching an entire film about her and about her experiences. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, and, and in some respects, that sort of, that there's a sort of, I don't know if metaphor is exactly the right word, but, but a parallel that's happening there in terms of who you think the protagonist of the film is, because it sets, the film is set up as if the protagonist is, is the young man that, uh, is introduced in the opening frames. But, but at a certain point, maybe consciously or maybe unconsciously, that shifts, uh, in, in the mind of the viewer, or, or at least certainly in my mind to being Ava. Yeah, and I I certainly identified more with Ava, yeah, and me I, too. I I wondered. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that because I do wonder how much of it was due to me being a woman. And the the film is definitely drawn not only along lines of human versus robot, but uh, male versus female. In that, yeah. you know, the well, the, that's where the conversations with Gia would would come in because because she she would talk to me about things such as where gender resides and how you define gender and and some of the some of the questions that Ava uh, implicitly presents and at some point they actually talk explicitly about it is it is about gender and and where it is and what it is um it, i mean you know uh is it in the mind? Is it in the consciousness? Is there such a thing as a male and a female consciousness? And if there is, how could you demonstrate that? You know, um, uh, is it, is it about how we respond to something? Is, is gender effectively conferred on you? Um, so if, in other words, if you've lived as a woman for 20 years and therefore had the experience of living as a woman for 20 years, is that where you get your femaleness from? Um, or is it, neither is it in external form? Uh, so we say, uh consciousness doesn't isn't in the mind but it's it's in something physical in which which houses the mind um and and all of those actually to to me that that would perfectly sit in the area of questions that the film could raise but not actually answer or at least i i would feel i, I would have difficulty answering any of them personally put it that way um, uh, you know, if consciousness is, is, if gender resides in, in the mind, in consciousness, well, how do you demonstrate it? Um, do you find, uh, you, you, you it, that must mean in a sense, men would think like X in a certain circumstance, women, women would think like Y, and then you immediately think, well, it would be quite easy to find a man that didn't think in the way that's being specified and a woman that did. And so now where are you? It, you know, it's that kind of thing. Right. And I, I also thought that that division between men and women and, and human and robot uh, had a, a, an even more concrete sort of metaphor uh, to, to mix my metaphors, I suppose, uh, to say about about gender differences, particularly with the men in the film just constantly underestimating the, the woman, the robot in the film, and that being what 
ultimately not I don't want to give away any spoilers, but that sets them up for the the climax of the film. Yeah, the I, I suppose uh, in in a in a really reductive way that what, what the film is about is is how do we either establish or fail to establish what's going on in someone else's or something else's mind, you know. And uh, to, to that end, the the apparent protagonist of the film is is set a task, which is. Uh, uh, meet this robot talk to this robot and establish uh does the robot have a mind and and uh demonstrate that in some respects and and that's his job and it's the job that the film sets out and and to an extent then it's the job of the viewer as well and at a certain point he just stops doing that he 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 stops thinking about what the robot might be thinking and he starts thinking along another completely separate train of thought which actually is is in a way much more to do with him than it is to do with the machine and and the question is why does he stop uh, why does he stop doing that? And if the audience stops doing that, why do they stop doing it? I mean, as with all of these things, uh, yeah, it is tricky to talk about without talking about the end of the film. But um, uh, but also, you never know in presenting these things. You know, I think they're implicit, but it but it very much depends on where the viewer, what the viewer takes into the film, and where they choose to position themselves. Um, I position myself with the machine, and I see the machine as as a as a sentient creature which is trapped in a glass box. And there is a jailer who is a kind of intimidating and predatory figure, and then the jailer's friend, and the machine has to figure out who to trust and how much to trust and and what to do to get out of the glass box uh and and that would give me one interpretation of the film i think you could also approach the film and feel allied with a young man for example um and then you might walk out with a completely different interpretation in some respects i think both are probably legitimate i i just have mine and uh you know my own set of concerns and and living here uh, in the Bay Area, as I do, I feel like there are probably a number of tech bros who might be walking out of the theater having sympathized with what we probably think of as the antagonist, Nathan, who is the sort of hyper-masculine, well, stereotypical tech bro. But at the same time, I, I feel that people can sympathize with him. He is the overbearing jailer, but there's suggestions that he's putting that on as yes. a... A yes. way to to do his experiments. Yeah, I, I I mean, um, with all of these people, I mean, partly because they're characters that you write. Uh, I I don't I have ambivalence about all of them. So so antagonist, yes, sort of. And as you just said, as you just pointed out, he may be presenting himself as the antagonist in a kind of uh, he, he may be almost caricaturing himself. Um, or or creating a persona in order to give this young man something from which the robot needs to be rescued for the purposes of the test. So 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 there's an ambiguity there, and also I myself have an ambivalence about that character Nathan. I mean, yes, he, he's he's all the bad things he might be, but he's also damaged um, and uh, isolated and and struggling with all sorts of things, and uh, and and sometimes. Uh, I don't know if this is the right way of phrasing it, but but what I like about Nathan is that when he sounds like he's saying something very unreasonable and unfair, if, if you look at it in a cold, dispassionate way, he's actually also saying something true. So he says hard truths sometimes, and I, I, I think I probably warm to people who say hard truths personally. I, I particularly liked his bit about his uh, painting in which he, he had a painting that was completely... Uh, 
remade by uh, his staff. Ah, paint, but, paint you, drop hey, by but that's drop. really, you've read the script. Uh, no, I haven't. You must have read the script. You no. You must have read the script. <laughs> it was in I the thought, film. No, man, I thought I'd cut that out. <laughs> really? Yeah, th- this is this is me having a real sort of brain melt moment. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that's very funny. Yeah, that's, that's in your film. <laughs> no, no, I thought I'd cut it out. That's too weird for words. I mean, I have to say, all right, just <laughs> just to contextualize this brain melt, uh, I, I'm talking about this bloody film the whole time. And my, while me and you are talking, because we've got this sort of funny shared history in Jia, yeah. I'm trying to not just repeat the same old crap I say again and again in the, the other <laughs> interviews and uh, and try to be articulate whilst also having a brain that is properly failing right. <laughs> and, and sort of uh, struggling with any number of different things, being freaked out, being tired, because uh, this is not my natural environment, doing tons of interviews back to back. It's really not at all. And um, uh, so uh, with that caveat, I, I would just say I have literally no idea whether it's in the film or not. And that, that's it's weird to hear those words coming out of my mouth, but it's that's the truth. That's very funny. Yeah, and I, it, it, yeah, it's... Sorry. And I apologize. I'm no, making no, your no. life what worse you by specifically no. trying to find questions that you haven't been asked before. No, no, but but obviously that's a good thing. So, look, just you know, Christ's sake, don't, don't say that because I'm in the most crazily kind of privileged position, being able to sort of try and get this film out there. So uh, anyway, let, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, so one of it's one of my favorite parts. I'm very glad you didn't cut it out of the film, but uh, Nathan talks about having a Pollock painting that's been completely remade and, uh, you know, paint drop by paint drop. And then he, he mixes them up and has one destroyed and he doesn't know which. And it's another way of talking about qualia. But this is something that's actually been done in scientific experiments where children uh, bring their favorite animal into a lab and the scientist pretends to clone the animal and then throw the other one away. And the children refuse to accept the quote unquote cloned animal, even though it's exactly the same in every way. So Nathan seems like it seems like a completely ridiculous thing that he's saying. But in fact, he's talking about something that is is in all of us, it seems since since birth, really, we have this, this desire to have whatever object has the magical property about it that we can't even describe. Yeah, it, it, it's where value lies. And, and why does it lie there? And, and is it in the thing? Or is it in our perception of the thing? It also relates to uh, a, a sort of uh, a phrase that comes up in conversations about consciousness in terms of some of the difficulties of defining it, which is a sort of a glib way of, of puncturing the argument uh, away from some of the rabbit holes, uh, arguably, which is if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck, you know. Um, and uh, But of course, an exact replica of a painting, uh, which does uh, metaphorically walk and quack like a duck, for us is not a duck we would not infer the same importance on it. We we feel cheated by those things. You, you know, you can go to Florence and there'll be a, there'll be what people say is the original David or a copy of the David and uh, which is the one they all queue to go and see. I, I would assume the original. Well, yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I lived in I, Buffalo I, for a time and there was a copy there and there was never a queue. <laughs> right. Nobody goes to Buffalo, New York to see a copy of the Statue of David. Sure. I, it, it gets particularly tricky, I, th- I think, with things like original photos, you know. Uh, so someone has an original print of a photo by a, whatever, Salgado or whoever it happens to be. And 
like like what is the difference between the the specialist print run of one to twenty five and and the uh the the sort of high def printout off the internet uh which is one of uh, an infinite number you know it's basically right. the same image and other studies show that we can also imbue items with a severe negative reaction there have been studies that show that people will refuse to wear a sweater that they think once belonged to a serial killer, even if they're yeah. paid for it. This does have a relation with, with the film. I'm not just sort of trying to drag it back in a segued way, but, but, but it, it was something I thought about, which was uh, to do with, it's to do with magical thinking, really. It's to do with how we, how we project sentience into things that don't have sentience. Um, it, Weirdly, the hard thing to do is not to suggest that Ava doesn't have, does have sentience, but that she might not have. Uh, we, I mean, certainly in a very obvious way, children with cuddly toys, it would be quite hard to find one that didn't imagine that their cuddly toy had some kind of sentience. But it's not like adults drop it. Adults believe they can hurt the feelings of their car, you know, if they talk in the wrong way about their car or, or businessmen can infer sort of, uh, like petulant behavior uh from their fountain pen if it stops working or whatever you know whatever it happens to be and um uh we we do that a great deal we we project sentience into trees and clouds and chairs and all sorts of things that that don't have any feelings about us or anything else at all one of the things i thought might be a, an issue with the film is that you present something that's very obviously a machine and then gradually i thought would be uh, trying to persuade audiences that actually the machine was sentient but in fact within a couple of moments most people are fully there um and uh arguably some of the stuff that follows for a while at least is redundant yeah and i i have to say that that's due in part to the great writing but also alicia vikander's performance in this film i thought was amazing absolutely stunning she she's an ex-ballerina i read which i think really comes through in her physical presence as the as this ai yeah I she was great yeah she's she she's uh she, she's an unbelievably talented actor who also has this whole other sort of uh, skill set which relates to physicality and, and a, a particular kind of precision that, that that dancers have and control that dancers have um uh it, it it always interests me with actors um when they're doing something which they are just not you know alicia vikander is nothing like ava um actually oscar isaac is nothing like nathan um and uh cer certainly both of them just inhabited those roles and then i remember meeting them you know say whatever it is many months later when you're you're doing the ADR and you're dubbing some scenes and uh, swapping out some bits of dialogue, whatever. And it's very disorientating to, to meet the actual person uh, and to realize how much you've lost track with it. Let me ask you a, a sort of random question. Uh, so Nathan's company, he's a, a multi-billionaire and uh, that's how he came about making this AI. He calls it Blue Book. Is that... Uh, based on the Wittgenstein uh, notes or is it just a... It, it is, yeah. Okay. It, it's, it, it, that's, that's exactly right. Um, it, it's, it's because the, the sort of epiphany moment for me in terms of uh, coming up with this script was, was reading a book by this guy, Murray Shanahan, uh, who's one of the people I tested the script out on actually and, and got, got to check it over. And uh, he, he presents an argument, which is an argument against 
uh, people who say machines can never be sentient. And he uses Wittgenstein initially uh, in his position. And basically what he's saying is that as you, you, you know, when you read Wittgenstein's thoughts on uh, thinking or language or whatever it happens to be, uh, no thought in itself provides any great kind of moment of stunning clarity and realization about the nature of uh consciousness say for example but taken together something begins to float out of it which is that uh he's never having to resort to metaphysics and things like qualia um and other sorts of problems of mind do feel very metaphysical and um or potentially metaphysical and so so murray was sort of saying look stop metaphysical thinking ban it for a while uh not 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 necessarily forever but just for the moment and approach consciousness without any metaphysical thinking and just see how far you can get until you run into a brick wall of metaphysics and uh, but maybe you never will and and I think he predicts that you won't I I hope I'm paraphrasing him uh, sort of reasonably um but but it was while I was reading what Murray was writing and trying to understand it I find it very hard to follow these arguments but doing the best I can um it was while I was reading Murray's book that that this story actually actually came to me so uh i i tried to acknowledge murray's influence really and 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 that blue book reference was a reference to to him or to wittgenstein by way of that i guess that's great and i might be butchering it as well because it's also very difficult for me to understand but i i believe that particularly the blue book in part dwells on rules and how they govern our behavior but they don't necessarily have any innate uh, validity of their own, which made me think of Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics and how your film seems to say that those are garbage once we start talking well, about AIs. The, the, the problem, uh, yeah, I mean, a separate thing comes up, which does definitely relate to the Pollock uh, painting, which I, I do remember being in the film, um, <laughs> which, which is about free will. Um, it's about whether it's possible, because in some respects, the Pollock paintings are are an attempt at an ex to, to execute something which is which which does not involve conscious thought in a particular. Anyway, look, I'm, sorry, I'm going to get into another rabbit hole, but <laughs> but but basically, the Asimov rules would preclude free will, and I think what. Or, or at least they'd limited in a way that was very uncomfortable. And what Nathan is trying to do is, uh, is, is explicitly not that. Um, he, he doesn't want to restrain the AI in that sense. Uh, and so, so, so the rules would be pointless for him. Um, and also, by the way, uh, there is no court of science fiction or robotics that says we have to obey these laws. They get called the laws of robotics, but they're, they're notional laws. I mean, uh, it, it's interesting how people hang on to them, but they're really just a proposal within uh, a science fiction writer's over. You know, it's nothing more than that. And even in Asimov's later works, the laws lead to some unintended negative consequences for humanity. But Well, that's what happened with laws, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that's how they end up. So you're an anarchist is what you're saying? Uh, actually, in some respects, I think I am. <laughs> I mean, certainly the way this film was made was a in a sort of conceptual version of anarchy i i really in the film industry that this is a complete tangent but um i i have real problems with what i see as the the deification of film directors um and the attribution of all sorts of things to film directors that that uh that, that don't seem to add up to any observations i've made in in working film for the last 15 years or so and um and so 
the, I guess the idea of the process was that there was a group of people who all agreed on the intention and then had a lot of autonomy in how they went about that. And, uh, without, without actually, uh, uh, leadership in some respects, um, just, just a sort of shared vision. And there is that, that, that is a sort of one conceptual version of anarchy. So, so sure. I'll take that. Uh, one last question for you. Let's say that there is a young person who is going to see Ex Machina this week and 30 years from now, she'll be putting the finishing touches on what might be the first true AI with consciousness. So what is the one message you hope she takes from your film and thinks about in 30 years time? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a tough one. Yeah, that really is. I mean, the film... The story of the film came out of somewhere of a kind of response to what I perceived as anxiety about AIs that didn't feel quite right to me, which was that AIs were seen as something that ran in parallel to us. If they existed, they would be this kind of other life form and they would exist in parallel. And because they're in parallel, they are in some respects rivals to us and we would feel rivalrous and threatened uh, by them and they might decide they're better than us and get rid of us or something like that. And, and th there's a whole set of consequences that comes from conceptualizing AIs as being a parallel life form. And what I attempted to do in this film was present it more in a sort of parental way and to say that AIs are more analogous to children of us. Um, uh, we have created them in the way parents create new consciousnesses, except in this form, it, it's a, a machine consciousness. And, um, and with a child, uh, unlike a parallel life form, you, you feel comfortable with the idea that the child will outlive you. In fact, it's the very, very least you want. It's the minimum you want from your child is that they outlive you. And, uh, moreover, you also hope they have at least as good a life as you've had and hopefully better. And, and so, uh, it would be to see AIs in that way as some kind of evolutionary continuation of us, not, not in a sort of strict Darwinian, you know, natural selection kind, but, but it's sort of spiritual or, or uh, sort of metaphorical uh, evolution and um and so to not feel threatened by them but to feel warm towards them and i think ultimately the reason i feel good about ava and i feel good about the way the film ends is because is because i feel affectionate towards her because i think the ai has a future uh, that we might not have and i want the ai to have that future i don't feel threatened by it so so it, it would be to treat the i the ai uh, as a parent, um, rather than a sort of uh, more detached creator, I suppose. Well, that was a beautiful answer. And I think you made it through with your foot intact. So Phew. <laughs> great. All right. Cool. <laughs> Alex Garland, writer and director of Ex Machina. Thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. No, thank you. I really appreciate that. So this is a fascinating discussion, because I'm left with this question that i think the movie poses which is a step beyond the turing test which is it, the initial question is really what is consciousness but i really think this seems to take that step towards the question of is consciousness defined by our social uh recognition of consciousness so like i see consciousness in the robot and that gives the robot consciousness 
was I feel like the philosophical question that really um, that he was trying to get at, which is really fascinating from the perspective of how we define what consciousness is. Is it really a social construct or is it a scientific construct that we can measure? Yeah, so this is actually gets at what I think, and this is just pure me, Indre Visconti, speculating, um, is one of the reasons why it's going to be really hard forever for us to ever get close to a, a very human-like a artificial intelligence. And that is because I think one of the fundamental components of our consciousness and our intelligence is our experience. And so from the moment you know a baby is born, um, they are interacting with the world, and it's the world that is shaping how you know their brain essentially is wiring, you know, at every single level, and especially in the first three years, but even throughout your entire life. So if you were really to build an AI, you'd essentially have to give it a lifetime of experiences by, you know, slow experiences. I mean, it would take, you know, literally 20, 30 years for that AI to become an adult, just like it does for a human being. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely interested in in the idea of experiences. And I think that gets to what he talks about in terms of qualia, you know, uh, and Mary in the black and white room. Uh, it's that, you know, you've got all of this data, you have all this scientific data, what happens when you step outside and actually experience the things that you have been scientifically studying all your life? Uh, do you learn something? And yeah, you know, you're right, in a way you do. And I don't think that that necessarily uh, makes me not a materialist. Um, it, but to me, it's the whole point is that the human brain, and therefore any AI we're going to build, is a tool for better observing the world. And, you know, you can only observe the world by using that brain, using whatever you build to observe the world. Uh, so yeah, and I, I think that's that's a lot of what the film is getting at and what's going to happen once this AI starts interacting beyond her glass cube that she's trapped in. So while this seems more philosophy than science, what's interesting is if you look at articles from neuroscientists that are studying in this realm, they really reference a lot of the this work and a lot of the work that it, that Alex references as being influential to their scientific research. So I want to just state up front that this is not uh, these big philosophical questions are really connected to scientific research. And, and neuroscientists get in trouble all the time for trying to answer questions that philosophers have been pondering much more deeply for hundreds of years. And in fact, philosophers yell at neuroscientists all the time and, you know, tell us essentially we're barbarians in their field, which they have thought about for <laughs> very a very long time. Um, and so, you know, I think as neuroscientists, most of us are pretty humble when it comes to understanding of philosophy. And, and also, we want to get to a better understanding and we don't want to make, you know, the same silly mistakes that philosophers made, you know, 500 years ago. We want to we want to move beyond that. Um, so I don't think that there's a single neuroscientist that is at all interested in consciousness that hasn't, you know, at least thought about the, the it doesn't doesn't have I'll even go out on a limb and say doesn't have this philosophical issue as one of the driving forces of their research. Yeah. Ab absolutely. And, you know, as someone who is interested in science, but who has never really gotten into philosophy deeply, this is the area where I sort of came back around thinking, oh, no, philosophy is really interesting. And it is something that I can grasp and that actually can apply to my everyday life when you start talking about consciousness, free will, uh, all of the questions that are dealt with in Ex Machina. Rebecca, did you think the uh, the AI in this movie, Ava, 
was conscious? Yeah, I I do. I I mentioned that to uh to Alex in in that, you know, it's one of those questions where uh at some point you just have to give up and say, well, okay, yeah, this I'm conscious, you know, I'm self-aware. And I think it's the same when you're watching an entire film that to me uh, the AI is at the center of this film. She's the main protagonist. And as we talk about in the interview, that's debatable. Uh, but that's that's certainly how I feel and that's how Alex feels. And so when you're watching a film that entirely centers around this person, then I think you have to say by definition that person is self-aware because otherwise, what are you watching? What's the I, point? I, still, I have to say, though, to me, I don't like this notion of consciousness being on, an on-off switch, that you either have it or you don't. Um, I really... Uh, believe that we should think about consciousness as a sort of a, a level thing, a continuum. But is it and, a biological property? Uh, I think, it, yeah, of course it's a biological property. It comes from our brains. <laughs> but, you know, I see there are times, like, I, you know, I watch my son, who's now 15 months, and, you know, he's he's in some ways developing his self-awareness, is developing his consciousness. You know, when he was three months old, you know, he wasn't conscious in the way that, you know, I think of consciousness being a fundamental component. You know, he didn't recognize himself in a mirror. He didn't, you know, he, he didn't even know where his limbs were, you know, <laughs> let alone anything else. And yet, you know, now there, he's becoming more and more self-aware. And so he's becoming in some ways more and more conscious. I think the interesting question then is, if it's a biological property, why in his system is it developing, but not in the system of I don't know, a rodent or a bacterium. Who says it's not? Who says rodents are not <laughs> conscious? <laughs> or what about a bacteria? Something that we would describe not probably not having. Well, a bacterium doesn't have a nervous system. So I, I, I mean, I think at some point, you know, you have to have. I, I think you have to have the components of consciousness which are going to be a nervous system. So I mean, is it enough to have two neurons send a message? And does that is that is there an inkling of consciousness there? And by that token, if I got rid of you know all of the neurons in your brain minus two, would you still be conscious? I don't think so. You know, I think there's a there's a a, a kind of a rate limiting amount uh, that you have to have. And I think it has to be connected in certain ways. It has to have developed in certain ways through experience and so forth. Um, and, you know, it has to have a certain, you know, electrical and chemical signature. We, you know, and, and, and that signature, I don't think is going to be something that, again, is just like, oh, it's on off. Um, it's going to come in different forms and, and does come in different forms and so forth. But, but yeah, you know, I think, I think rodents have a certain self-awareness and consciousness and, you know. What about, what about YouTube commenters? <laughs> Well, Self, that's self a whole special breed. <laughs> I feel like studies need to be done. Yeah. I do not volunteer to participate in that study. <laughs> well, I think that's probably it for another episode. I want to thank you, Rebecca, for being our guest host this week. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or your own thoughts about Ex Machina, which opens today in many cities. Um, cities everywhere, something like that, uh, April 17th. Anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by harrys.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. 
That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Coupon code Inquiring Minds. Inquiring Minds is produced by consciousness advocate Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis at Indre Vis on Twitter. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. And I'm Rebecca Watson at Rebecca Watson. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>